If you turn now with me to your Bibles, uh, we're looking this morning at Second Timothy chapter three as we carry on in our service in uh, in our series in Paul's uh, letter to Timothy. Uh, you'll find it on page nine hundred ninety-six in the Church Bibles. Let me just remind you of the story so far. As uh, Bishop Moore, M-O-U-L-E, put it, uh, these, uh, humanly speaking, were very difficult. Um, it's a very difficult time for the church. Um, it was, uh, humanly speaking, he said, on the verge of annihilation. The Apostle Paul was writing his uh, final letter. He knew that he was about to die. The emperor was trying to stamp out Christianity. And the province of Asia, where the Apostle's Paul ministry had had so much impact, he says that they had all deserted him. There had been a grand desertion from the gospel. And uh, the primary church in that province, uh, the church at Ephesus, uh, false teachers had um, risen up within the church or were putting pressure from without the church. And so humanly speaking, it all depended upon Timothy. And yet Timothy was the most unlikely candidate for this task. A rather shy man, uh, physically weak, young And so Paul writes this letter to give uh, Timothy courage for the task that he has facing him. He tells him to join with Paul to suffer along with him for the cause of the gospel. And then uh, in this chapter 2 that we've just completed, he he uses various pictures to encourage Timothy in his work. And as we saw last week, a couple of them were about, you're in the house of God and there is a master in the house, the Lord Jesus. And to be used by God, you've got to be a clean vessel and a humble servant. And so that's the story so far. Now we come to chapter 3, and Paul is uh, saying to Timothy what I call Get Real, which is the title for the sermon. So chapter 3 in verses 1 to 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as uh, Johns and Jombres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. 
This is God's word. Amen. Do please go ahead and grab a seat. Well, I don't know about you, but when I look around at the world today, uh, and indeed the church today, when I look around at uh, politics and the global situation in our society, I wonder what on earth is going on. Uh, It uh, actually reminds me a little bit of a line from a Bob Dylan song. For those of you who are under the age of 30, you may not be familiar with who Bob Dylan is. Maybe, I don't know. Um, Born Robert Zimmerman, Bob Dylan, one of the the greatest um, songwriters of his, perhaps any age, a a very gifted man, very influential. Um, Bob Dylan has a line in one of his songs where he says this. He says, "The, the night watchman clicks his flashlight on and then asks, is it him or them that's insane? Well, I ask myself sometimes that, I don't know about you, whether you do, about what's going on in our world today. Is it, is it me that's insane or everyone else? You look at the politics and the discourse in our country, who's insane? You, you, you uh, look at social media threads and you, you look at uh, the wider church, you just wonder what on earth is going on. And then what is our responsibility in these days? Well, Paul is writing to Timothy and uh, basically he's telling him two things that we'll look at this morning from this passage. He's saying to him, you've got to understand something and you've got to do something. You've got to understand something, and you've got to do something. First, understand. This is verses 1 through to 5 in the passage. He says, understand that uh, in the last days, there will be uh, times of difficulty. Now, it's very important as Christians that we realize there are things that we simply need to understand. We live in an age, uh, uh, Canadian philosophers called it the age of authenticity. We live in an age where feelings are the ways that people decide whether someone is really being authentic. You you can listen to what people say. They would say, I feel this. I feel that, not I think this. I think that. And we tend to feel that if someone says, I think there's a, uh, perhaps they're not being entirely authentic. They need to tell you how they, how they feel. But Christians are people of a, of a mind. We are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, heart, soul, strength, and mind. And if we're to live right, we need to think right. And Timothy You need to understand certain things, and we need to understand certain things. We need to grow in our our love and our knowledge. If we want to live right, we need to understand right. And as Charles Spurgeon put it, the one who is the greatest enemy of Christian living is the one who is the greatest enemy of Christian thinking. We need to understand certain things if we're to live right. Well, what are we meant to understand, Paul? Well, we need to understand that in these last days, there'll be times of difficulty. Now, when we hear that phrase, the last days, we tend to think of uh, those uh, few days right before when Jesus will return. But here Paul is talking about a time that Timothy was living in, in the last days. 
And the New Testament use of the last days is uh, really all the time from when Christ has arrived to when Christ returns. There may be an increasing intensity, the Bible talks about, right before Jesus returns. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and all the rest. There may be increasing intensity, but in the New Testament, the last days are right from when Jesus uh, came and lived and died and rose again, and then up until when he returns. And that's why uh, Peter, when he preached his famous sermon at Pentecost, he said as they had received the Holy Spirit, he quoted from the prophet Joel and said, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit. In other words, they right then were in the last days. Or as the author to, uh, the, of the book of Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken by his son. That is, in the uh, life and death, the teaching and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the last days. And so as John Calvin put it, the last days are a description of the universal condition of the Christian church. Timothy, you are in the last days. We are in the last days. There is increasing pressure that comes because the devil knows that he has been defeated and so He's doing all he can to fight a rearguard action against the progress of the gospel in the last days. You need to understand this, Timothy. You need to get real. You need to get real. And in these last days, there will be, Paul says, times of difficulty. Now, what Paul is not saying is that uh, the... uh, condition of the Christian church will always be difficult. No, but there will be times of difficulty. There will be special seasons of pressure on the Christian church. And that, of course, is the history of the Christian church. And uh, Timothy was in such a season when Emperor Nero was putting huge pressure on the Christian church. And there have been other times where there's been persecution on, on the church. These times of difficulty... As uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones once put it, the child of light must sometimes walk in uh, in darkness. You've got to get real. Now, of course, you don't hear much teaching about this. And the reason why is because Christian teachers want to always accent the positive and to give you everything that is positive. And, of course, that's true. We, we should do that because we believe in the good news. And the good news is a positive message, is a message of rescue and redemption. But it is robbing Christians of courage to not tell them that in these last days there will be times of difficulty. And we need to face up to the reality that such things can happen. And if we don't hear that, what we'll feel inside, what we'll think inside, is it must be our fault. We're doing something wrong. We must have missed the guidance of God. But no, in God's sovereignty, in his providence, there will be times of difficulty for his people. He'll put pressure on them or allow pressure to happen so that The jewel, the precious gold that was within, the light will shine even brighter in those darkness as the child of light walks in times of darkness. You need to understand this, Timothy. 
But in particular, you need to understand that in such, such times, the general condition of, the, of, the human, uh, human, of human nature will be revealed for what it really is. And so now he describes from verse 2, really, to the end of verse 4, uh, he describes all this, this, what people will be like. And when you read it first, he says, uh, there'll be people who are like this and like that. It, it sounds like a great long list of complaints about people, but actually it's carefully constructed to reveal the true nature of the problem. We think the problem is political. We think the problem is social. But no, says Paul, the problem is far deeper than that. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Such people, he says, will be lovers of themselves. And then there's this list of characteristics rather than lovers of God. The heart of the problems that we face in our society today, that we face in our cities today, that we face in our world today, is an inversion of the intended love. We are intended to love God first, then love others, and then finally love ourselves. And we've turned that on its head. We love ourselves first. In fact, we're often told to do so. You've got to love yourself. Love yourself. That's the message of our age. They're lovers of self. Love yourself first, then others, and then perhaps maybe God, if he fits into my preference. That's the, that's the problem. It's a love problem. It's a heart problem. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And then Paul, as he describes this issue, he has concentric circles of expanding impact from this heart problem. There are three of them. The first is the impact on the self, and then the impact on the family, and then the impact on wider society. And in the impact on the self, he talks about, first of all, lovers of money. If you love self, you want to be a, a lover of money, and, and, and you want more and more stuff. And we see that all around us, don't we? The haves and the have-nots. You know, in 2017, Oxfam did a survey that showed that the eight the eight richest people in the world owned as much as half the entire population of the world. There's a huge disparity of money and resources. But of course, you can be poor and still love money. It's a, it's a hard issue. It's a love for money. And there's pride. Yeah, I want to be top. I believe I'm the best. You've got to be proud of yourself. That's the message of today. Arrogant or overbearing, pushing your agenda, selling yourself, and abusive or literally evil speaking, slanderous. Of course, that's what naturally happens. If you're all about yourself, you use your money, you use your ego, and you use your tongue to beat down everyone else. That's, that's what we see. 
But, says Paul, it also impacts the family, the next circle out. And uh, now, with the phrase disobedient to parents, begins a series of descriptions which in Greek begin with the letter A, or as we would say it in English, A, which is a negative form, a bit like we say disobedient or un as we begin a word. And, it, and this next section seems like it's primarily related to, to family, disobedient uh, to, uh, uh, to parents, ungrateful for what you've received, unholy, the word there could, was used um, of the natural feelings of affection and loyalty to, to, to parents, unholy, heartless, that is, lacking even what the, the, the pagan, non-Christian, atheistic world was, would think was just natural human affection. And then unappeasable, that is irreconcilable, that is you can't even bring them to the table. They won't even talk about it. It's just like, no, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't want to even talk about it. And we see that impact on our families all the time. And the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. In the end, it's a love of self. It's what I want that counts. And I'm not even going to talk about what someone else might want. I'm unappeasable, irreconcilable. But there's a further impact, uh, Paul was saying, and that impact is really related to, uh, to human society. And he begins with this, uh, this word slanderous, uh, which um, has at its root the same word as used for the devil. It's about backbiting. And he's referenced the devil in the previous chapter. And so behind this is a devilish kind of backbiting accusation. That's the devil's work. He's the, the father of lies. And, and, and more and more there's an imitation of that slander, that uh, attack that we see everywhere in our society. You, know, you just say one thing online that may not be quite right, and then they'll blow it out of all proportion, slander you, backbite. And, uh, and then he talks about these other things that we're very familiar with in our, in our society. Without self-control, indiscipline, brutal, the word there is, is like of, of an animal, a wild animal, not loving good, that is not even being... Uh, wanting to think about what's the general good for society. No, it's what I want, not what's good for society. Treacherous there, or betraying. It's the same word as used for Judas in the New Testament, of betraying, recklessly, rash, rushing ahead, swollen with conceit, puffed up. All of it, lovers of pleasure rather than the lovers of God, all of it comes down to a self-love. You've got to get real, Timothy. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. At, it, at its root, at its core, at the center of it all, is a basic orientation. And this is, this is, the, this is the, the fault line, the disease of, the human, of human nature. That we naturally want what is best for ourselves rather than want to glorify God and to serve and love each other. But here is the thing. These people that Paul is talking about, such people, are religious. 
having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Paul is not talking about people who, who are outside the institutional church. He's talking about the false teachers and their followers having a form of godliness but denying the power. They know the hymn book, they can quote Bible verses, they, they know the creeds, they've been baptized and confirmed or whatever. They, they, they know all that stuff, they have the form of godliness but they deny its power. In particular, in that context, they're denying the power of the resurrection, which is the central part of the false teaching, this denial of the resurrection, saying it's already happened. They're denying that power. They have the form of godliness, but denying its power. And it is shameful to, to admit, but true, down through church history, that the institutional church has at times, there'll be times of difficulties, not always like this, praise God and his mercy. But the institutional church, there have been times when those with a form of godliness act in exactly these ways. Because you see, what we need is not more religion. The answer to the problems we're facing in our society today is not more religion. No, it's a we don't need a form of godliness. There's nothing wrong with a form. We need a structure. We need an organization. We need a form, but we don't need merely the form. We need the power of God. Only the power of Christ by his Spirit can come into an individual and give a new love. The antidote a mere form of godliness is real biblical Christianity received by faith and committing your life to Jesus so that you don't have merely the form, you have the resurrection power within you. Now, Timothy, you've got to realize this. You've got to understand this. This is what you're dealing with. You're dealing with the fact that there are people who look like they are religious but really are just like such people I have just described. You've got to understand this. You've got to get real about it. You've got to understand the situation that you're facing. Well, uh, Paul, thanks very much, said Timothy, and uh, Merry Christmas to you too. But what should I do about it? Well, says Paul, there's not only something you need to understand, there's also something you need to do. And this is the second half of the passage that runs uh, from verse verse, uh, 5, at the end of verse 5, to the end of the passage. And it begins with the other command. There are two commands here, understand this, and then the second command, something to do about it, which is avoid such people. That's his command, avoid such people. Now, we've got questions about that. What does he mean by avoid? What does that actually mean? Why? And then how is that actually going to make any difference? What does he mean by it? Well, first of all, he he doesn't mean by it, avoid non-Christians. No, he's talking about false teachers, people who look like they have the form of godliness, but are really these kind of people. 
He's not saying don't work with non-Christians. He's not saying don't talk to non-Christians. He's not saying if you don't know Jesus here, you know, you're welcome. We want you here. What he's saying is avoid what uh, Article 26 of the of the Church of England articles talks about how that even in the visible church there is often evil mingled within. Avoid that. But what does he mean by avoid? Well, it's helpful to realize that in in, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, he's used a similar term. This is the third time he's used it. First time, he used it in chapter 2 and uh, verse 16. He talked about avoiding irreverent babble. That is, avoiding the kind of foolish teaching about all sorts of controversial things. Don't get involved with the street fight, Timothy. So there's that. And then a little later in that chapter 23, he talked about have nothing to do with foolish controversies, but instead gently teach. So by avoiding, Paul's not saying don't engage. He's not saying just ignore the problem. He he calls Timothy to gently teach, to humbly correct But now he comes having described such people. He says, avoid such people. What he means by that is marginalize. That is, you've got to engage. You've got to engage this false teaching that he said earlier can spread like gangrene. But there can come a time where you just need to marginalize that gangrene. even, even, Even cut it off so it doesn't spread through the rest of the body. Again, as that Article 26, the Church of England puts it, such evil ministers after just judgment, due process, should be deposed. There comes a time when there's false teaching in a local church that just needs to be, you just need to avoid such people. But that's the final step. It it could mean don't put such people on committees. Don't put them as leaders of of Bible study groups. Don't don't put them in places of influence. Don't, Don't set them up as examples of godliness when they're not. Avoid such people. Marginalize their influence. And you say, that sounds very harsh. Why on earth would the Apostle Paul say such things about people? Well, there is an answer to that, and he describes it. He says, four, they are creeping their way into homes and sort of gaining control over weak women. <laughs> what, what does Paul mean by that? Well, the, the image here that he has is of a covert military operation sneaking into literally the houses, that is, houses known to Timothy, probably the wealthy and, from a worldly perspective, significant houses, creeping into them and preying on the vulnerable. That's what he says is going on. That's what they're doing. When he talks about weak women, he's not, or literally the little women, he's not saying that all women are weak or little, any more than he's saying that all men are on a covert military operation to prey on the vulnerable. But what was going on in that context was these false teachers, these men, were um, waiting until the husbands had gone to work, going to the houses, the big, prominent, wealthy houses, finding a way into that house, preying on the probably young and naive wives, 
There was probably a sexual um, undertone to what was going on. He says, led astray by their passions. And this would explain why Paul often says to Timothy in First and Second Timothy that you should, you should make sure you act with absolute purity towards the young women. But the false teachers were not doing that. They were charismatic personalities, you know, flashing a big smile, looking very handsome, walking into the houses, and at least, if not actual physical sexual activity, at least flirtatiously engaging with dialogue when the men were away with the women, preying on their vulnerability. That's why, Timothy, you can't mess around with that. You can't just ignore it. You've got to avoid such people. You've got to marginalize such people. You're a shepherd, Timothy. You must suffer along with me for the cause of the gospel. You must protect the sheep from the wolves, Timothy. But how is that going to make any difference, Paul? Well, says Paul, let me remind you of a story from the Old Testament. Do you remember Moses when he was leading God's people out from Egypt and he was right there in Pharaoh's court and there were these false magicians. You remember, we we know their names from from legend. It's a legendary set of names, Jeans and Jambres. You you remember these people that we we knew growing up in the Jewish uh, mythology, these Jeans and Jambres, the magicians in in Pharaoh's court and, and, and yet, and yet God honored the truth. He'll do the same with you, Timothy, as he did with Moses. Their folly will become apparent to all. In other words, as John Stott put it, there is something patently spurious about heresy and something self-evidently true about the truth. So here you are, Timothy, you've got to get real. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And what is more, that is infecting the very churches that you're looking at. And you therefore need to understand this and you need to marginalize this. Teach and correct, as I've already said, but don't worry. God, God will honor the truth. Well, we also need to understand these things. We need to understand that this is the reality of the human problem. We need to understand that it isn't merely the form of godliness. It is the power of the resurrection by his spirit. That we need our leaders in every realm, politics and church and social organizations, to be people who love God first and therefore give their lives to love others. And their self-love comes third. Not first. We don't just need more religion. We need the power of Christ. I came across uh, this, and I'm going to conclude with this, this somewhat uh, amusing description of mere human religion. It's from a, a British context, so you'll have to excuse some of it, but I think it will translate fine. It talks about 60 quid 
which is quid is the equivalent of bucks, and 60 quid is who knows how much in dollars. I have no idea these days, but it goes like this. It's a little sort of doggerel poem written by a pastor in England some years ago. I drive a bus. Yes, that's my job at 60 quid a week. I'm a sinner, so they tell me, one what Jesus came to seek. So the pastor says, and he's the bloke what really ought to know with his everlasting sermons. He's the bloke what runs the show. At the church down in the high street, Zion Chapel, that's the name, Methodist, or maybe Baptist, I don't know, they're all the same. Services at 10 and 6, and wear a suit, men, if you please. If you've got a cold, don't come, or if you do, don't dare to sneeze, because the pastor doesn't like it, and he makes an awful fuss. But you have to treat folks different when you're driver of a bus, I often thought I'd like to be a Christian just like you with an in-book in me and maybe learn a prayer or two. Of course, I'd have to learn the language, all them these and thous and thuses and the shouts and shoulds and mayests. We don't use them on the buses. Yes, I'd like to be a Christian. The Christians spoke like us. But you have to talk like humans when you're driver of the bus. The answer is not religion. It's the power of the resurrection. Oh, our Lord God, we do ask for that power to be at work among us. And we thank you that it is so prominently in all these things going on in this church, but we don't take it for granted. And we pray, Lord, that in particular this morning that your power would come and give new life and strength and courage. Lord, as we look at the world around and even the institutional church, we do sometimes wonder what on earth is going on and what on earth should we do about it? We're reminded this morning that we need to have a real perspective on these things and not pretend that we by nature are good when we know that certainly isn't the case and not think that mere human religion is the answer when really it's the power of the resurrection. And Lord, we're reminded in the end it is that power. It is your power, Jesus. It is you yourself, risen, glorified, present now by your Spirit, who is worthy and able to lift us up, send revival in this country and around the world, and bring us out of times of difficulty to times of rejoicing and peace and hope. We pray you do this for your great glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.